You're listening to the Candida Chronicles with your host, Dr. Jeff McCombs. Welcome to the Candida Chronicles, a podcast to help you learn more about Candida and how to safely and effectively treat it. I'm Dr. Jeff McCombs, and I'll be your host as we discover all about Candida. In today's episode, we're going to look at Candida testing. How can you be positive that you have Candida? Uh, This is something a lot of people want to know. They don't want to uh, spend money on any type of treatment. They don't want to spend any time following any approach unless they know for certain that they have Candida. Uh, they may have seen the, uh, the lists of candida symptoms, and there may be several, many of those that they have. Um, they may be able to relate their uh, symptoms back to having done antibiotics and what happened to their health after that. Uh, but many people, they just want to be certain. They want to know. Uh, they don't want to waste their time, and they don't want to waste their money, definitely. Um, and the first thing that brings to my mind uh, as... Uh, a physician, a doctor, a doctor of chiropractic. What I've seen over the years is that testing can only serve as an indicator. Uh, as much as we would like it to be that gold standard where you have something or you don't have something, testing really is just an indicator. It can indicate that you might have something. Uh, I think it would be nice if it was the great tool that we all hoped it was or believed it was, but the reality is that it requires interpretation, which is one area where error can be introduced into uh, the whole process of trying to rule something in or out. Um, Basically, the skill of the doctor, the amount of information that's known about any one test subject, test area, um, those are all factors that uh, allow for error to be introduced. Um, You also have to rule out other possible causes. Uh, that could create a false positive or a false negative. So this is another possible area of error, especially when we consider that most people have hundreds if not thousands of chemicals in their body and how those chemicals create responses in the body, how they affect the tissues, how they interact to affect the body and the tissues. There's so much that's not known. So basically we use testing as, uh, as a way to measure, as a way to find out something, but it's only one of the many indications that we have uh, to consider. So it, it should not be the only consideration, um, but for a lot of people it is, and it, I'm, I'm here to say it shouldn't be. Uh, we see this with Candida. Um, we see where um, people really want to invest the money in testing, and that's fine, uh, but you should be aware that if you want to test if you have Candida, and some of these tests can be a little pricey. You should also do a test afterwards. So you test before, you test afterwards. So any time you consider how much a test will cost, you should double that because if you really want to know if you have it, then you also really want to know that you were successful in getting rid of it. And, um, you know, so it can be pricey. Um, One test alone may look pricey. I mean, stool tests tend to be more pricey. And if you have to double that twice, then, you know, it is another consideration. And I do want to cover that because I believe that since testing is an indicator and there are some other strong arguments as to why testing may not really be necessary, uh, we want to consider that when we're looking at candida testing. Um, You know, some of the limitations in candida testing are that um, uh, 
test, they test for the yeast form, the candida. They're not testing for the fungal form, and it's the fungal form which is the problematic form. The yeast form is the beneficial form. Um, the, I believe the rationale in testing uh, using the yeast as the test uh, is that um, basically when you have an overgrowth of yeast, you're more likely to have an overgrowth of fungus. And in order to test for fungus, it's actually uh, much harder to do and would be much, much more pricier. So the testing that's out there, really, you're testing for candida in the yeast form. And uh, it's not the fungal form, so it's consideration. Our experience um, with the candida plan is when we've seen people test positive before doing the plan, they always test negative afterwards. So that would tend to indicate that uh, using the yeast as the, the form that you're testing for has some validity insofar as what I've been able to observe clinically. Um, another consideration when you're doing a test is that the tests are most specific for the tissues that are being tested. So if you're doing a stool test, that's most specific for the large intestine and probably more just the lower part of the large intestine, not the small intestine and not the rest of the body. Although it can be an indicator, um, it's really most accurate for the, the large intestine and the lower part. If you're doing a blood test, that's most accurate for the blood. It's not necessarily accurate for a candida that's in the tissues. Uh, the blood is, is kept very well regulated. There's a high presence of white blood cells in the blood, so candida isn't going to be spending much time in the blood. And so um, that can be another reason to um, look at blood tests and consider maybe it's not as accurate as it could be um, because the blood it tests for just the blood and there are reasons why it may not be that accurate. Blood testing also tends to be the least sensitive of the test. But having said that, I've seen stool tests, PCR stool tests, which were considered to be the most sensitive, test negative, while people would test positive on the blood test. And then after doing the candida plan, they'd be negative on all the tests. Uh, when you look at urine testing, you're really testing more specifically for the urinary tract. Although ur urinary testing is looking at metabolic markers from candida, um, the metabolism, these are waste products that are thrown off by candida, and should you have a candida infection, you would have large amounts of these, then that would be an indicator. Again, it's an indicator, requires interpretation, there can be false positives, false negatives, and so that's one of the things you really have to consider when doing candida testing along with the cost. Um, some people will do the test before, and then based on how they feel as a result of following an anti-candida diet or approach, if all their symptoms go away, they'll consider that the positive. It's another consideration. It's what I see most people do when they do testing before, um, but it's, uh, it's not really the scientific approach that um, people use the testing beforehand. They want the scientific validation that they have this, but then afterwards they're not really that interested. So, you know, it's, it's how you spend your money, it's what you're looking at, but let's look at some of these tests and uh, also maybe why you don't need to do the test um, based on some of the science that's out there. I think, first of all, the one test that we should discuss right off the bat is the test that has very little validity to it. It has some, but it's very little, and that's the common at-home spit test that you see advertised on many websites. Um, you will see this advertised mostly on websites that don't have a physician associated with the website, 
and because they don't have a physician, these people are actually aren't able to order um, the stool test or the urine test or the blood test. So this is a spit test. Where did the spit test come from? The spit test was actually created in the 90s as a marketing tool by a company that was trying to sell more of its product. They took the spit test and they said that if this test was positive, then you had candida. So what is the test? The test is the first thing in the morning when you wake up, you're supposed to gather a bunch of spit or saliva in your, in your mouth, and then you're supposed to spit into a glass of water. And then over the course of the next hour, you're supposed to periodically check on the glass of water to see if the mucus has sunk, forming some strands into the water. If this happens, they say this is a positive test for candida. But there's really no science behind why that would necessarily be so to the exclusion of anything else. And again, this is just an at-home test. It was created as a marketing tool, but now you see it used and promoted on a lot of sites as a way to test to see if you have candida. And it's not a valid test for candida. Um, what can cause the mucus to sink in the water that they attribute being a positive indication of candida is if you have dehydration. Well, if you've been sleeping all night, your body is in a dehydrated state. So the first thing in the morning when you wake up, your mucus is going to be thicker. You're dehydrated. So now what you're seeing some of these websites uh, recommend is that you drink some water before you do the spit test. And drinking a little bit of water isn't necessarily going to um, rehydrate the entire body. That may take a, a two, three glasses of water or more. Um, so dehydration could be one cause. Also, if you have any type of allergies, whether they be airborne allergies or food allergies, and these could be allergies you're not, you don't really, you're not aware of, those allergies can cause increased thickness to the mucus. You could have nutritional deficiencies that cause the mucus to thicken. You could have uh, chemical allergies, heavy metal allergy. Uh, your body could be inflamed and producing more mucus. Uh, you could have a viral infection that's active. You could have a bacterial infection that's active. You could have mold in the body or mold in your environment. All of these can cause the mucus to thicken. Um, so it's not just candida in its fungal form. You could also have yeast that your body's responding to um, or uh, other types of um, mycobacterium. So there's a lot of things that can be happening here that would cause the mucus to thicken enough to the point that it would sink down into the water. I mean, because mucus, in generally, when it's thick, is going to sink because water isn't going to hold it up. But there are a lot of different reasons why the mucus would sink down and someone would be led to believe, based on how this test is promoted, that they have a positive indication for candida. And um, just looking at the science, there's no science to support it. It came out in the mid-90s. I've been uh, looking at Candida, working with it for over 30 years. I've had the Candida plan for over 24 years. And we've been around and we watched this test come out be used as a marketing tool back in the 90s. But now it's really being promoted as the test for Candida. So right off the bat, I'd say that the spit test is not a valid test. And if anything, it would be an indication that whoever's promoting that test really probably doesn't know a lot about Candida. And they're using this test and promoting that it's valid just shows you how much they don't know and how much they're not really investing into discovering why this would be, what causes it, 
and um, they're not really that interested. So hopefully we can avoid using the spit test as a positive indicator because it could mean so many other things. Um, now, now that we're past the spit test, when we look at some of the standard tests for candida, we have the stool testing, we have blood testing, and we have urinary testing. So these are the three main tests that you're going to encounter out there. There's also culturing, direct culturing from tissue, but that doesn't happen very often unless you can direct culture from oral tissue, vaginal tissue, from the skin. You're really not going to be able to get into the body and do um, direct culturing of tissues to see if candida is there. Uh, and that being said, even cultured tissue, I mean culturing tissue, culturing candida out of tissue, um, can have false positives and negatives as well. So again, we're into this interpretation, reliability, and um, so you always consider testing as an indicator and not really much else. Uh, if we look at stool tests, um, for years, the I think the leader in stool testing was Metamatrix. They had a PCR stool test. Uh, PCR means um, polymer, polymerase chain reaction. It's a technology that looks at genetic pieces that are present in any tissue. So we're talking about very, very minute, small uh, samples of candida in the tissues or whatever tissue is being tested. And then this would be amplified through the PCR technology and you would be able to find candida in its, in its smallest presence as an indicator. So obviously this type of testing is very sensitive. If you, can small, if you can find candida down at the genetic level, little genetic pieces of it, and use that as your, your test, and you're going to be able to really determine whether or not candida is present. Although it tends to suffer from the same limitations when you're doing a stool test, you're still looking only um, primarily for the most accuracy at the large intestine. Uh, Metamatrix was purchased by Genova Labs, I believe, a couple of years ago. Genova did away with the PCR testing and went more towards the standard stool testing that they had been doing for years, which is to collect three stool samples and then uh, average the, the findings of those samples to, to get the results as to whether or not you have a positive finding. Um, Genova Labs has said that they're going to be bringing back the PCR testing. Uh, it's on its way back. I actually, in preparation for this podcast today, gave them a call to see where they were with that. And they told me that um, they were having some problems with the reagent needed to do the PCR testing, problems with the reagent from the supplier. But they hope to have that resolved soon, although they couldn't give me a date as to when that would be happening. So, you know, this podcast is uh, uh, June of 2015, so hopefully within the next couple months they'll have it back. And it's, it's a great test. It's, it's very highly sensitive. It provides um, the information most people are looking for uh, in a, in a very, in a very uh, reliable way for the most part. However, the one drawback with such sensitivity, it may create a false positive. So that's something to consider, that you may have uh, a false positive. When doing these tests, they may uh, ask you to avoid the use of laxatives, antacids, digestive enzymes, digestive aids. That's just so you're not altering the pH or flushing out the bacteria, creating uh, an abnormal uh, picture of what's taking place in there. Um, so in addition to looking for candida, uh, the one test that uh, is mostly used is the GI effects comprehensive stool profile by Genova. It looks at a lot of the other bacteria. They test for 24 commensal bacteria, the uh, bacteria that they would normally find in the digestive tract. So they do do PCR testing 
for the bacteria. They just don't have the PCR testing for the candida as yet. Um, but it should be coming back. Um, you know, one way that you may look at doing testing, whenever you're doing testing, you may try to amplify the test results by following a diet that would really promote fungal candida growth, which would be having a lot of sugar might do that. So if you were going to see if you really had candida and you want to flare it up, you may uh, have a diet that's sort of a bad diet for a couple days prior to doing a test. Um, that's one thing to consider. Um, it definitely would help to um, probably amplify what's there and hopefully produce a more accurate finding. Uh, Genova Labs is one laboratory that does uh, stool testing, doctor's data, uh, Diagnost Text is another one. Um, there are some online sites that will um, uh, enable you to go to those sites to order testing. Uh, definitely at candidaplan.com we have uh, candida testing available. I think truehealthlabs.com is another, another company that has that. Um, but you'll, you'll see some sites, but typically you need to work with a doctor to get this type of testing done. Um, one thing to point out is that this testing, some of these tests they do a test that's called susceptibility testing. And with susceptibility testing, they may take whatever they find and expose it to different antifungals or antibiotics or um, natural antifungals. So they may use medic medication, pharmaceutical antifungals like diflucan, uh, nystatin, um, amphotericin B, they may use those, they may use um, podiarco, uh, tea tree oil, um, undesnoic acid, which is what we use with the candida plant, to test to see if they expose whatever they can culture from the stool test to see if it actually is inhibited by that, that, uh, that drug or that natural product. And um, some people are, are doing less of this type of testing. It's thought to be not as reliable as they hoped it would be. And if you consider that really what you're testing is yeast, the yeast form of candida, then it may be that since the yeast form is beneficial, if you find a positive with one of these substances, perhaps that's not a substance you want to take because you're going to be eliminated, eliminating the beneficial form of candida. You're going to eliminate the yeast form. So that's really what's being tested for. So I think when they do susceptibility testing, the way I read susceptibility testing is whatever is positive at inhibiting the yeast form of candida is probably not something that you want to do. Um, so that's my take on it. Um, so you can consider that in, in, you know, when you get the results back and what the susceptibility testing shows. Because undesinoic acid is really going to be effective against the fungal form enough. And they're using it in these tests, but they're, they're testing the yeast form. So maybe not as accurate and um, reliable and as insightful of an aspect of these tests that often shows up. The next type of testing that we want to look at is uh, the blood tests. So blood tests are probably one of the most widely available tests that you can get out there. You can get it from many doctors, um, whichever doctors recognize Candida, which is a small group. And um, so it's, but it's more widely available. A lot of labs can do this test. Um, what they're looking for typically, uh, they'll be looking for antibodies, uh, substances produced by the white blood cells in the response to Candida or by the antibodies produced by mucus cells. So they'll look for uh, IgGs or IgA or IgM. These are the immunoglobulins, the antibodies produced by white blood cells. 
And so typically if you've had candida in the blood, it's going to produce these antibodies. If you've had it in the tissue somewhere, it produces antibodies. And hopefully these antibodies could be in the blood. So they're looking to pick up the presence of these antibodies as a positive indicator for candida. Um, IgA, again, comes from mucus cells. IgG is the most abundant antibody, immunoglobulin, in the body. It tends to indicate uh, past infections, but can also indicate present infections. There are some labs that will only test for IgG because it, indi it can indicate both past and present. Uh, typically, IgM, which indicates a present infection, is the one that's often used to state that whether or not you have a present infection or if it's IgG, a past infection. But there's a little um, leeway there and because IgG could also mean you could have a, a present infection with IgG present. So they're looking at the antibodies. Um, Quest Diagnostics is one lab that will also do PCR testing of the blood. They'll test the serum, again, for these genetic samples. So that can be a highly sensitive type of test for the blood. So much more, much greater sensitivity than the standard blood tests. Um, blood tests aren't considered to be the most sensitive tests. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's more difficult to culture something from the blood. The blood is, is one of the main highways through the body. It has to be pure. Um, it's filled with a lot of white blood cells that keep infectious agents out of there. You don't ever get really infection in the bloodstream unless you are severely immunosuppressed. So um, it's not as sensitive a test, but I've seen it be positive when the stool tests have been, have been negative. So something to consider. It's, it's always this, this area of interpretation and how valid these tests often are. Again, the blood test would be most positive for the blood. Uh, a third type of testing is urine testing. So again, this would be most positive for the urinary tract. But what they're looking at uh, in urinary testing are metabolites, uh, byproducts of cellular metabolism of candida, sort of waste products. You know, what's being created, what's being eliminated by candida. And uh, Great Plains Labs does a fantastic job of testing for this. They have an organic acids profile test where they look uh, for, I think, specifically arabinose, which is a sugar produced by candida. Sometimes you will also find uh, oxalic acid levels that are higher. Um, when, you, when you hear oxalic acid, just think of tiny little crystals covered in spikes. Um, uh, oxalates um, come from, or found in foods, in spinach, parsley, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. So avoiding these type of foods before doing this type of testing can be beneficial so you don't artificially elevate the levels of oxalates in the crystals, I mean in the tissues and in this test. Um, but again, it's, it's a good test. Um, I like Great Plains Labs organic acid testing. However, I usually have people, I find most people do blood tests or stool tests, and um, those tend to be used the most. Although, if you can afford it, you know, having a third test is nothing wrong with that. The more tests, the better. Um, and the reason for that is, I mean, if you really want to take a shot at uh, coming up to the most accurate diagnosis of candida, you would actually want to do two to three tests because, again, you know, these tests tend to be most representative of the tissue that's being tested. So if you po tested positive in the blood and the stool, well, you know, that's, that's very good confirmation. Um, you may test positive in the blood and negative in the stool, positive in the stool, negative in the blood. Another thing to consider. In that case, maybe you were to go to a third test. 
But again, there's, there's some room for error in all these and the reliability based on the testing for the yeast form may not be the most accurate. So, but doing two to three tests, um, and most time you see blood and stool when people combine tests, and you want to combine that with your signs and symptoms. You know, what are the signs and symptoms that you're having? Or you have signs and symptoms that are related to candida. Uh, you have to consider that, but you have to also consider that a lot of signs and symptoms related to candida can also be related to maybe heavy metals or certain chemicals. So you've got the tests, you've got your signs and symptoms, and then you want to look for a history of antibiotic use because a history of antibiotic use is antibiotics definitely predispose you to candida. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. And then if you can, if you followed an, an anti-candida diet and you had good results, that would be another positive indicator. So if you've got a positive test, you've got signs and symptoms, a history of antibiotic use, and you actually felt better following an anti-candida type of diet, then you, know, you look at that and that'll give you, uh, I think, the most complete diagnostic picture. Um, but uh, something that we had talked a little bit about in episode one, uh, antibiotics, and we had looked at how reliably antibiotics will produce systemic fungal infections, I tend to use as my yardstick whether or not somebody's had antibiotics. And you know, who hasn't had antibiotics? And uh, so does everybody have candida? Eh, possibly. But you have to remember over 50% of the people in, in one test didn't have signs or symptoms of candida. So it's not something that will always be easy to relate to based on how you're feeling or your signs and symptoms. And that may come and go. So, you know, we have to be aware. We have to be conscious. And um, we miss a lot of that because life is busy and life is stressful. And there's enough to do without uh, really paying a lot of attention to all our aches and pains. But when we look at antibiotics, we, we, we see from the research that it can take anywhere from 4 to 52 or 59 hours after antibiotics to get a systemic fungal infection. That fast. That's as fast as it happens. Um, and how does that happen? How do antibiotics accomplish this? Well, I've made a list of 10 different things, uh, 10 different ways that antibiotics will create systemic fungal candida. And nothing else will do that except maybe chemotherapy but not many people have chemotherapy, although when you do look at chemotherapy, one of the risk factors of chemotherapy is a systemic fungal infection. So, I mean, that's, that would be another indicator in my mind. Um, when you destroy 100 trillion bacteria in the body, and this takes about five to seven days of antibiotics to wipe out 100 trillion bacteria in the body, the complete microbiome practically gone, the microbiome, which many scientists consider to be as important an organ as the brain or the liver, um, wiped out in five to seven days of antibiotics. Well, wiping out 100 trillion bacteria, which inhibit and prevent candida from growing and spreading, means that candida now can grow and spread. There's nothing to inhibit it. So the competitive inhibition by all these bacteria is gone. Uh, specifically, the lactobacillus species, which make up a certain portion of the bacteria in the ecosystem of the gut. Uh, they specifically will inhibit candida. And then once they're gone, candida will inhibit them from growing back, which almost makes using probiotics to try and get rid of candida useless until you get rid of the candida. So loss of competitive inhibition is one way. Change in the pH. Uh, pH is one of the strong conversion factors to change candida from its yeast to its fungal form. So destroying the bacteria that produce these acids, these lactic acids, that keep the intestinal tract in a relatively healthy acidic pH range 
that's gone. So now you have a shift in the pH towards a more alkaline range. And again, pH is at that scale from zero, uh, 1 to 14. Uh, 7 is neutral pH. Anything below 7 is acid. Anything above it is alkaline. And different papers show that anywhere from around 6, uh, pH of 6 to 6.5, 7, uh, will be a trigger to cause the conversion of the yeast to fungal form of candida. So change in pH. Antibiotics create loss of competitive inhibition, change in the pH. They also cause a flooding of, um, into the tissues of substances called peptidoglycans. Um, what are these? These are substances inside the bacteria that have been found to directly cause uh, the yeast form of candida to convert to its fungal form. It's a trigger. It's a signal from the environment that candida can just grow unchecked. And candida will also use certain building blocks of the peptidoglycans for its own use, uh, specifically N-acetylglucosamine. So we've got loss of competitive inhibition, change in pH, peptidoglycans. Uh, antibiotics suppress the immune system. They suppress the ability of the white blood cells to eliminate pathogenic candida. And bacteria as well, which is, is odd when you think of antibiotics being used for infections because they suppress the immune system. They suppress the ability of the immune system to clean up fungal candida infections and even bacterial infections. Uh, macrophages and neutrophils are the two white blood cells that are most effective against uh, candida, and uh, they are suppressed by antibiotics. Their, their ability to consume and eliminate uh, candida is uh, suppressed by the use of antibiotics. Uh, loss of competitive inhibition means loss of nutrient competition. So if there aren't 100 trillion bacteria competing for the same food that candida has to compete for, then that means it's a free meal for candida. They're not there, so it can grow. And this is, this is not a permanent situation, but it takes up to several weeks to two to three months, and even in one study, up to nine months for the bacteria that was wiped out by candida, uh, wiped out by antibiotics, to grow back into the body. So that allows candida plenty of time to grow and to spread throughout the tissues. Uh, antibiotics are destroying the bacteria that secrete antifungal compounds. So the ability of lactobacillus species to inhibit candida, that's gone. The antifungal compounds created by the bacteria are gone because the bacteria is gone. Uh, antibiotics disrupt the mucosal barrier of the intestinal tract. The mucus, the mucosal barrier that lines the intestinal tract uh, has mucins in it that prevent candida from attaching to the intestinal wall. Mucins are proteins found in the mucus, and these very same proteins are broken down and degraded by antibiotics. So without the mucins present to prevent candida from attaching to the intestinal wall and then breaking through the intestinal wall entering the bloodstream, candida has a much easier time of accomplishing this task. So that's another way that antibiotics cause problems. Antibiotics can also directly stimulate the conversion of yeast to fungus. Tetracycline is the only one that I've seen that is capable of this in studies, and it's somewhat questionable because it may be some of these other changes that I've just spoken about that are actually causing this conversion and not tetracycline directly. But there are a few studies out there that name tetracycline as being capable of causing the conversion from yeast to fungus. Um, antibiotics eliminate the 100 trillion bacteria that regulate the immune responses. These bacteria, this microbiome, this important organ, helps to regulate how the immune system responds. So without that regulation factor, without that assistance, you get more dysregulation of the immune system. 
Antibiotics also cause a shift in immune system responses that favor the growth of candida. So Th2 response is one that's not so effective against fungus, viruses. Um, so that Th2 response is often caused when you get more chemicals put into the body and you get that shift towards a Th2 response. Or there are basically two types of immune response and this is like a very general concept. But you have a Th1 immune response which the body produces the response that's necessary to get rid of fungus and you have a Th2 which is not as effective at getting rid of fungus. So antibiotics create a shift towards this Th2. So we have a lot of different ways that antibiotics facilitate the growth of candida. We have papers that show that it happens within a matter of hours to just a couple of days, two or three days. And um, we have papers that show that it happens very quickly uh, and on a, on a widespread scale. So in, based on the research, based on what I've seen, based on the results, to me, antibiotics is the yardstick. If you've had antibiotics, you'll have systemic fungal candida. Whether it's symptomatic, whether it's creating problems for you, that's another issue that's based on, on your immune system, your diet, your stress levels, um, your toxin exposure. This is based on a lot of things. But just because you may not have the typical symptoms doesn't mean that you don't have it. And based on what the research says, I say antibiotics are, are the yardstick. But for those people who don't think that's all they, they need to know, then they, they go to the testing, and, um, and that has certain limitations and restrictions as well. So, you know, if we consider everything, tests, signs and symptoms, history of antibiotic use, results from an anti-candida, if you really want to look at a good diagnostic impression, a good diagnostic workup, you consider all these things. Uh, take them into consideration, and, uh, and then um, make the best choice. You know, consult somebody else, maybe. Myself, you know, a lot of, a lot of good doctors out there, uh, holistic doctors who are able to help you answer these questions. And uh, if nothing else, uh, start following an anti-candida diet and uh, see what results you get. So uh, one of the things we had talked about doing in the first episode is, is doing sort of a question of the day. And uh, today's question is going to be one that we get periodically and one that I probably had twice last week is can someone who is pregnant follow a candida diet or an anti-candida diet? Uh, good question. Probably depends on the diet. If you're following the typical one that's out there that restricts all these carbohydrates, that may not be too good for you. Um, carbohydrates, every cell in your body needs carbohydrates, especially in pregnancy. You're going to need carbohydrates. You're fueling not only uh, your life, but the life that's growing within you. So the typical anti-candida diet may not be that beneficial. Um, on our diet, we allow uh, fruit, um, and uh, it's one of the things we'll be discussing in the future. I mentioned a little bit about it in the first episode, but basically if you take all sugars out, that weakens your immune system, just as when you have too much sugar, that weakens the immune system. And you start to change the bacterial flora, and what we know from research in the last year is that the bacterial flora actually plays a role in ensuring that the pregnancy continues. So removing all carbohydrates from your diet may not be the best thing if you're pregnant. Um, and uh, another thing that we want to look at is a case study. So I think this week I would like to tag that in with the, uh, the question. And uh, the reason being, we've had um, over 50 women diagnosed as infertile um, do the candida plan and go on to have babies. And, um, you know, I'm not making a claim here. I'm not saying the candida plan did that. 
because you know what we're learning about the microbiome and how it affects pregnancy if that is altered if that has been changed and definitely antibiotics change that and there are a lot of good books out there that really go into more depth about this um, then if that's changed that then changing the microbiome is going to have an effect on pregnancy and it used to be that if you were a uh, woman who were diagnosed as infertile that was it you know you were infertile but now through greater appreciation and time and observation, you know, we're, we're seeing these diagnoses overturned, meaning that it wasn't a permanent thing, it wasn't an absolute. And now they have a diagnosis. If, if this happens where you were diagnosed as infertile and then you get pregnant, they say, well, you had a functional infertility. So there was some imbalance in your body and that caused you not to be able to conceive. And this, this, can, this can affect men as well, so it's just not a woman's issue. I mean, these imbalances can affect uh, men too. But uh, um, we have seen uh, repeatedly, time and time again, where um, following the right program, getting a good diet, um, changing the microbiome, bringing it back into balance, uh, has facilitated uh, at least over 50 women now that we've seen uh, go from infertile to fertile and to go on and have babies. So... Uh, that's sort of our case study. It's sort of a group observation study, I'll say. And, uh, and, uh, but it, it does show how important the microbiome is. And it does fit perfectly in with our question of the day. So this is the end of episode two. If you have questions, let us know. Uh, you can go to our website, candidaplan.com forward slash blog, if you'd like to read more. Um, I have over 170 blog posts out there on the science behind Candida. And uh, a lot of information, we're on Facebook, our Facebook group. We have a private group you can join. Uh, follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and send us your questions. And um, I think in our next episode, we're going to look at uh, start looking at candida diets. I mean, that's really, where, that's really where we're heading with all this. And so we'll start to look at some of the diets and, uh, you know, what, what's the benefit of this diet or that diet and the different approaches that are out there, and there are a lot of them. So we'll try to... Uh, get through all of that and hopefully give you a, a better understanding and um, some useful information that you can start using right away. Have a good day.